you know, these people who are worried about a hard day on takeoff, I think the main thing they're worried about is uh, one entity having an advantage so that the checks no longer matter, right? So if it's a slow takeoff, then everybody's competing with each other. The checks sort of work the same way that they work out. If somebody suddenly gets a 10x or 100x advantage over everybody else, uh, then they could ignore all the checks and impose their own bill. And that's what people are worried about. This is a conversation with Peter Norvig, head of research at Google. It's the recording of an in-person meeting at the Agoric House in Palo Alto that was part of our Intelligent Corporation group. Agoric is a proof-of-stake chain that utilizes secure JavaScript smart contracts to rapidly build and deploy DeFi. Thank you, Agoric, for sponsoring this conversation. Peter is not only director of research at Google, but also co-authored the seminal textbook on AI, A Modern Approach, together with Stuart Russell, that inspired an entire generation of AI researchers to pursue the field and educated them in promising paths. It's used by over 1,500 universities in over 135 countries. We discussed drivers of progress in AI, dangers, the path ahead, whether it's an intelligent explosion or a decentralized system of specialists, differences in human and AI cognition, how to define utility, designing objective functions versus designing frameworks, what humans and institutions and superintelligences have in common or not, and so forth. You could join these conversations virtually by applying to our technical group, or you can join in person at Vision Weekend, Foresight's annual member gathering at the Internet Archive in San Francisco and a castle in France in December. More at foresight.org. Enjoy. AI progress. Take us on a path on the trajectory that we're on. Uh, if we develop the systems that, that you are currently building, do you think that we'll head more into a future of, you know, perhaps a, a more centralized agent, a single, perhaps that, you know, uh, via economies of scale creates like one centralized agent uh, with lots of power? Or do you think we'll move more into decentralized uh, autonomous market, perhaps where like with m many different entities engaging with each other, uh, you know, in a more decentralized way? Uh, that uh, resembles more our current market economy. So do you think we'll, uh, it will be, become more of a winner-takes-all scenario, or do you think we'll have more of the, perhaps Eric Drexler notion of, um, uh, of decentralized services that get more and more specialized in an ever-advancing economy? Which path are we on? If okay. Uh, well, first of all, cheers. Cheers. Uh, thanks for cheers, everyone. us all here. Uh, that's a great question. And, and I hear that a lot from uh, you know, like my friends in academia. And I remember uh, uh, years ago, I, I went to uh, UPenn to give the talk and said, you know, here's all the things we've done. Here's the models we've built. And uh, Fernando Pereira was a professor there. And, and he got up and he said, you know, I feel like uh, it's as if we were particle physicists and you're the only ones with a super collider. And so what can we four academics do? And, uh, you know, within a year, he was my roommate at, at uh, Google <laughs> and uh, has been at Google ever since. And so... I see that a lot from academics who are saying, I just can't compete. I don't know. I need these resources of data and computing in order to do the things that I like. Uh, so that certainly suggests this idea of centralization. I do think, however, that, you know, we are seeing this uh, cloud service providing being a growing business and there's a number of competitors. And right now they're competing on who can give you the cheapest uh, per cycle or uh, per uh, gigabyte of transfers. I think they'll start to compete on who has the best models, who has the best pre-trained models. 
So I think that will open it up more. Uh, and there will always be these economies of scale. And uh, we're seeing a lot of that. We're seeing a lot of this winner take all. I think most of the winner take all is not really due to AI. It's due to uh, global communication, right? So, you know, if I'm a tomato farmer and I'm 10% better than my competitors, then I get 10, maybe 20% more money. But if I'm an app maker and my app is 10% better than everybody else, then I get 90% of the audience. And it's a global audience, not just the audience within a few miles. And that's been true for a number of years. I don't, I don't think AI necessarily accelerates that. I think it's the, the global communication access to global market that, uh, that makes that happen. Any comments? Anyone strongly agree, strongly disagree? If making apps is a good example for you, if that's something that AI is going to do, being able to spend better than you know, whatever mm. uh, software yeah. staff you've got spending you know, 24-7 whatever, uh, can't they make that 10% better many, many of the time? Yeah. Yeah, so that's a good question. And you hear all these analogies, and, and I forget who it was that said uh, AI is a new oil, maybe Kai Fuli or, or somebody like that. Or data is new oil, yeah. The economist. Yeah, the economist or something. I think that's wrong, because the great thing about oil is that it's fungible. And, you know, I don't care if my oil came from Alaska or Saudi Arabia or whatever, I can use it for the same thing. But for data, that's not true at all, right? Uh, you know, if I'm building a language model and I want to build a model in English and my data is in Chinese, it's not going to help me, right? So I think data is more compartmentalized. And, and so you will see that data, sort of localization, globalization. Yeah, so compute is more like oil. Yeah, that's right. Nice analogy. Um, all right, great. Well, so uh, another question, I guess, that I had, you had have this one talk on, I think one of the hardest things that you had to learn was, uh, you know, letting your AI learn and letting uh, learning to let go uh, of how your AI learns. On the other end, you also wrote this uh, article on, you know, how, um, you know, teaching yourself how to program could take as much as 10 years. So, you know, I guess there's this, not really a distinction to be made, but like, like how do you see that, um, uh, you know, that trajectory panning out? Like, do you think eventually we will have to just, let's go and they'll become more uh, understandable and incomprehensible to us and, and much more independent? Or do you think that there is something to be said for actually trying to, you know, create uh, really uh, intel intelligible models to us? And yeah, where do you see yeah. that trajectory going? Yeah, so I wrote this essay, uh, you know, in response to all these books that said, uh, you know, teach yourself programming in 24 hours or whatever. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, you know, my response was... Uh, Yeah, I, you can learn something in 24 hours or 30 days or whatever they promise, uh, but you're not going to be a professional at, at that point. And I think maybe it's a lacking of the software engineering profession that we aren't certified. I mean, it's, it's good that we have this freedom to do what we want. Uh, but, you know, if you want to be a civil engineer, there's a long process you go to to prove that you're not going to make a bridge that falls down. Uh, and it takes many, many years to get to that level. And I think the same thing is true if you want to reach a certain level of uh, achievement in software engineering. So that's what I was trying to say. On the other hand, uh, you know, if you just want to solve one particular task, then there's lots of things you can do in, in just a few hours. And, and I have nothing against that. Right. And if that's the level you want to be at, uh, then sure, go ahead and do that. And in terms of the system, uh, like, you know, the AI systems that you interact with, 
Um, do you feel like they are becoming uh, more and more distinct to any type of intelligence that you could, um, you know, like much uh, or like like at least easily comprehend? Like, do you think that they're yeah. sufficiently becoming different? Because one thing that we mentioned in the book, at least, is that, you know, over the long run, we are very likely going to create cognitive architectures that are significantly different to the to our human ones in a way that they may actually become incomprehensible to us. Do you think that's that's something that's uh, likely from your vantage point? Yeah, I, I think that's true. And, uh, you know, and I talked uh, this morning about uh, computing becoming more of a natural science where you make observations and you're never able to actually get to the ground truth. You just uh, make these theories. Um, and even though there is a an underlying mathematics that is absolute, uh, you can't get at that because it's too complex. Uh, but I think we shouldn't be too surprised at that because we're, we're already at that with uh, respect to trying to understand each other, right? So we never really understand uh, how another person is thinking. We never really understand how ourselves are thinking, right? We have a model of ourselves, but that's just the model. It's, it's not, uh, we don't really understand what's going on. Uh, so we should uh, learn to live with that. I guess uh, what well, we had Jillian um, Hatfield the other day, and uh, she mentioned that uh, I think impartial observer from uh, Adam Smith, and the, that the way that you know we react to each other uh, over time is also by the, formed by the reactions that other people have to us and our reactions back to them. And so I'm guessing that because we can at least model our uh, other human agents at least somewhat still, that there's still maybe a little bit more of a uh, of a bridge to be built, but that may be much harder if we're interacting with agents that, you know, are really good at tricking us or yeah, using all kinds of... Right. But, you know, like, you would have all these bugs. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you, you ask someone uh, how much they're willing to spend for this bottle of wine, and that number will change by 30% uh, based on... Uh, first, you ask them to write down the last two digits of your social security and if they write down, if it, that happens to be 90, then they say, oh, yeah, I'd be willing to pay $7 for this bottle of wine. If it oh, happens wow. to be 20, then they say, oh, no, I'd only be able to spend $30 for this bottle of wine. Right. So something that should be completely related. It's a number. People can't help take that number into account. And dozens of other uh, bugs that humans have. Uh, and there's nothing we can do about it. Any reactions to this? Agreements? Disagreements? Yeah. Go for it. So, um, uh, taking this into account, also take maybe speak up a little if you can. One of the things that came up this morning uh, is the danger of, um, of centralized media companies um, having an incentive to make use of these bodies of humans and essentially yeah. humans into. Uh, act, you know, into making decisions that are not in their interest, but in the interest. So, so basically, you've got this this uh, undefended raw human, and then you've got this uh, increasing AI that's trying to learn how to manipulate them. Uh, where I want the, the counter vision that I find attractive, and I, but that I haven't thought about, is the notion of an, uh, an epistemic assessment. Than to have a uh, that the agent that the thing that 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 you are as an agent in the world that is unable to defend itself epistemically while engaging with the world, you have your own AI that's helping you uh, weigh evidence and engage with other agents that are trying to sneak with you. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a, that's a great idea, and 
you, you know, uh, I look at these uh, assistants that we have today, which are very primitive to uh, uh, Siri and Alexa and, and Google and so on. Uh, but I think it's really interesting because they represent a uh, sort of phase change in operating systems. So we only have a few of those, right? We went from mainframes to PCs to mobile, uh, and now there's this other candidate. And, uh, you know, and I find it kind of crazy. You, you know, if you'd asked me five years ago, hey, I've got a great idea. Let's throw away the keyboard and the mouse and the screen, and all you have is a speaker. Won't that be great? I would have said, well, you're nuts. Why would I want to throw those things away? So you could tell why I'm in uh, research and not in marketing. <laughs> right? Because I had no idea that that was going to be popular. So sure. that's popular. But the other thing about it that I think is really interesting is right now when I want something to happen, you know, I want a, uh, a pizza to show up or a car to show up to, to take me somewhere. Right? I press one of these icons on, on here, and now Domino's or Uber has complete control over my phone. Right. I've given it a hundred percent of the screen and everything else. And their programmers are in charge of the interface and manipulating me in whatever way they want. But with the assistants, it may not be that way. It may be that I say, Hey, I want a pizza. And now the assistant is more on my side rather than Domino's being on Domino's side. And I have a chance. Uh, so I think that's really interesting. And, and we'll see how it all plays out. Sure, Ron. <laughs> Sharon, hi. Um, a question for, or maybe like a comment on of where you mentioned. Uh, well, you can't learn, you know, uh, I don't know, software engineering in twenty four hours to be like that useful. And also, um, a bit, I'd like the commentary on how AI is kind of like this natural science because we <laughs> we very much interact. We you know we like do all this fine tune, but well, we could all this tuning and hyperparameter tuning, especially. But now I think we've evolved or there's this growth of prompt tuning. That's kind of interesting. Uh, prompt tuning. So instead of doing hyperparameter tuning as someone who understands what's going on with uh, the system, I think humans who have maybe less education uh, or less like technical skills in terms of software can do prompt tuning and start to interact with the AI that way. Oh, when I said this, uh, GPT-3 said that, and so maybe I should modify this slightly. And I think Google has a search engine and it's very much prompt tuning, right? Like, can you prompt to get the search results that we want? And so I'm just curious what your thoughts are on the growth of that interface. Yeah, yeah, I think that's interesting. And, and we're certainly facing that at Google, that we spent many years where we taught people to, uh, you know, just give us the keywords, right? Don't, don't speak English to us. Don't say, please, Google, could you tell me, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and so we trained them to do that. Uh, but now we can do more. Right? Now we actually could have a conversation and people are still typing in three keywords. So now we've got to say, you know, never mind what we trained you to do over the last couple of years. Uh, now, we, now we're going to work completely differently. And that's tough. And, uh, you know, we, I said we had this paradigm of uh, Windows and Vice, the web paradigm. And the great thing about it was it was discoverable, right? I could go up and at the top of the screen, there's five categories of commands and I could click on each one. And I could see, okay, well, now I kind of get the feeling for all, what all the commands are. And some of them I got to kind of explore and I don't quite know what's where. And, and maybe it's hard to figure out where something is, but it's all sort of theoretically understandable. But if you just got a speaker sitting in front of you, you have no idea what you can do, right? And 
and I can ask for the weather and I can ask for my calendar and I can ask for directions and so on and maybe 10 other things. And after that, I'm kind of stuck. I don't know what else is going to work and what's not going to work. And, and two, two requests that seem very similar to me, one of them works perfectly and the other one doesn't work at all. And so either we've got to get to the point where the AI is so good that it's just like a person and you can ask it everything. Or the human factors people have got to do a much better job of explaining, here's what you can ask and here's what's not going to work. Like maybe taking that uh, notion of the kind of like person epistemic uh, assistant and combining it with what we talked about today, which was a little bit the notion, I think he was suggesting in one of the Dex Friedman uh, podcasts, but also I think, you know, just in general that people are much more interested in like, um, when you, when you say of a rational intelligent agent at max, maximizing expected utility, people back in the days were very interested in like what is maximizing and what is expected means. And now more and more people are interested in what does this utility mean? Yeah. Uh, and so I guess, you know, we at least in the book take a more skeptical approach to the fact that, that there is something like, you know, maybe even a public utility that can be aggregated across humans, mm -hmm. uh, that then an AI could be aligned with. And we basically say, look, this is really difficult already for humans to just know what, what's up in each other's hand, uh, heads, then let alone aggregate this and then let alone teach this very human notion of what we care about to AIs that have a very different cognitive architecture and grew up in a different, under different evolutionary constraints and so forth. So I'm just, you know, I, I would just be curious to see, because you, you mentioned that maybe that relies on uh, a more crude notion of utility that doesn't take into account externality. So I'd be, Curious yeah. to know, like, how, uh, you know, hopeful are you that we can figure out something like, you know, uh, an aggregate utility for humanity and teach it to an AI that has a very different cognitive architecture? Or aren't we better off with just doing what we already do as a civilization? We don't expect everyone to kind of like, you know, reach value consensus on everything. But instead, we put a framework in place that allows different, you know, values or different utility mm -hmm. maximizers to kind of voluntarily cooperate uh, in, a, in, a, in a way that has little vulnerabilities, but much um, yeah. much space for cooperation. Yeah, I don't think we're ever going to agree. Uh, one of the things the I... The two of us or... or everybody else. Everybody else. It's a good case yeah, in point. Two of us might agree. Right. We, we're probably a lot closer <laughs> yeah. than uh, the rest of the broad world. Uh, one of the things I'm really interested in is the epistemic status of gamma. Right? So in, in reinforcement learning, you, you raise to a power uh, what's going on in the future and sort of discount what's going on in the future. And you do that for a number of reasons, right? So one reason is, is it's the same reason your bank does it, is that having money now is more valuable than having money in the future. Uh, another reason you do it is uh, so that there won't be infinities and so that you can actually reason. Uh, and then, uh, another reason you do it is you're less certain about the future, so you don't want that to count too much because it might be a mistake. Uh, and we try to squish all three of those things <laughs> into one little number And then nobody has any idea what the right number is. So you just, you, you know, empirically try different numbers and you say, well, well, for this application, this value would best. And that doesn't seem right, right? It seems like we should have a better idea of, of how much the future counts. And, you know, I hear some of these uh, singularitarians uh, saying, uh, well, we sh you know, in the future, we're going to be in millions of planets and there's going to be... Who are they? Trillions of people, and uh, you know, so everything we should count about the future, and you know, today you should hardly count at all. And uh, and my reaction to that is, well, yeah, you know, I really care about my kids. I got two kids, and you know, if they ever ever have grandkids, I'd probably care about them. 
But 10 or 20 generations down the line, they, they might all be assholes. Why should I care about that? Right? <laughs> Maybe I want them to have negative utility. Well, lest we had escape velocity and are around for it. Yasha, uh, are you in the Can you speak up? I'm sorry if we're doing yeah. the same, but I think utility might are the uh, two short sided which serves as that way that's what the world look like. So if you just take the value system software, then you can what to it that like people want to assign the same value to every person, but want to assign more resources to the ones they love. They uh, people want to just be like a base generic, but they want everybody to have the same outcome. And so on and so on. All these things do not run together. And ultimately, if you are brutally honest, many of the choices that you get are very unpleasant And ultimately, you have to justify own choices. This is an expected outcome. So don't have to discuss this utilities. You have to discuss the utility with respect to the reward that we want to have. What is the law that we want to have? What are the laws that are obtainable? How can we have a negotiation about that? Steal the bank. Wait, this object anyway. For instance, AI ethics is something that currently is AI politics. Yep. And it's not done with respect to expected outcomes. It's expected with respect to the impact of the politics of the day. You see a way to change that? I mean, we, we can have that discussion, right? But I think you're right that ultimately we have to decide what is it that we really want, right? And um, so I've been following like this case with the uh, Compass, this. Uh, a uh, recidivism scoring system in the courts. And, you know, critics say, well, oh, well, this is not fair because you look at the damage when you make a mistake and, uh, you know, black people are uh, disadvantaged twice as much as white people. So it's blatant. And then the company that provided it said, uh, no, we think we are fair because the metric we're tracking is if we give you a score of six, that means you should be 60% likely to recommit a crime. And uh, we do that, and, and we're equally accurate whether you're white or black. So therefore, we're, we're unbiased. And so it's just a question of which definition of fairness do you go by. And it turns out it's impossible to satisfy both of them at the same time, unless the base rates happen to be exactly equal. Uh, so then we have to decide, uh, what is fair fairness mean? You know, everybody says fairness is a good thing, uh, but nobody decided exactly what it means and how much it, each of those you want to put together. That's what, as a society, we have come up with. Um, okay, we, maybe we take one over there and then... Hi, it's, it's uh, Lauren Zion. Um, I was wondering if you... Uh, what's your take on the fact that there's a probability to uh, you living to see those um, planets, right? I mean, I'm in the longevity field. Um, I, I, I would give you uh, maybe not 99%, but a pretty high probability that uh, you would make it to a longevity escape velocity and you would enjoy those that future that is not going to be for your 20 generations down. Uh, I sort of felt like I, I was too late and, uh, you know, may, maybe another generation. They're still but, bionics. But, but, but I'm glad you're up there. <laughs> Oh, you got to take that in your vision. Okay, so, so if it works, I'll be happy. Okay, one more from Peter, and then one last question. For the very long-term future, you know, how we prioritize that is in some kind, kind of grand future, and in the short term, for things like recidivism prediction, um, one of the answers to um, be confronted with really incompatible goals is that we should be structurally uncertain about 
uh, and try to like explicitly build your system to be on the side. In fact, with the only compass front, the partnership on AI, we were a big report about that problem. And that was probably one of the very things that like people didn't really uh, take out of having a bunch of smart people work on it. But what I'm curious about is whether you see any places where that's starting to happen in high-state systems design where people are saying, oh, these goals conflict. So we have to have a user interface that services that multidimensional value trade-off through lots of people all the time. So they know they're not accidentally smuggling a really dangerous choice about fairness into the machine said this person was high risk and so on throwing them in prison. Yeah. Uh, I don't know of good examples of that. I, I, I think that's an important area, and, and I think uh, we need better tools for that. Right. So we, you know, we spent a lot of time devising programming languages to tell us what to do in elegant ways. And we spend very little time devising languages to tell us what we want. Uh, and, and I think we do we need, need to work on better tools for that. Well, I think, you know, one thing that um, even with the fairness, you know, uh, I guess, yeah, disagreement about like what counts as fair, like I think, you know, one like beautiful way I think that we also discussed today in the conversation was, look, you know, even if we don't all agree, um, we still as humans live in a civilization that can handle those disagreements really well. Uh, and we can still cooperate with those uh, entities, whether they're human software or whatever, uh, with those that we want without really, uh, you know, inflicting uh, much hurt on the others. And so, you know, one, uh, I guess, way in which we could do that across humans, uh, we already discussed today, what were institutions, right? And there, uh, and so the constitution uh, as a thing in itself was already able to place different types of institutions uh, and different types of humans working in institutions in opposition to each other to be able for them to keep each other in check in a more, I guess, multipolar way, right? And so, yeah. you know, we discussed it, I guess, as a brief thing. Could you imagine something similar working in the context of AIs as well? Like, I think you also shared the fact that we already are in a civilization that is a super intelligence in which we're cooperating with a variety of different intelligences. And even if we don't always agree, at least we find a way in which we cooperate with e uh, with each other, we hold each other in check, maybe in a way in which, you know, this different powers are set uh, um, against each other. Is there a way to actually completely um, do that in uh, artificial intelligence systems? Like, could you uh, imagine a way in which they could be uh, placed in such a in such an order towards each other? Yeah, I guess I'm pretty confident that that things will be kept in check. Yeah, and uh, you know, I worry sometimes about the way we keep things in check. Right, somebody to sort of first uh, uh, sort of brush with political issues was in the 1980s when I was a member of. Uh, Computer Professionals for Social Responsibility, which mostly said, uh, well, we shouldn't blow up the world with nuclear weapons. Yeah. Uh, we should try to uh, teach uh, policymakers that these software systems are not completely reliable and we shouldn't rely on them and she should have more safeguards against uh, blowing each other up. Uh, and so far that worked, whether because we were prescient or because we were just lucky, uh, but we're still here. Uh, and but we still face a lot of risks. And, uh, you know, these people who are worried about a hard AI takeoff, I think the main thing they're worried about is uh, one entity having an advantage so that the checks no longer matter. Yeah. Right? So if it's a slow takeoff, then everybody's competing with each other. And the checks sort of work the same way that they've been working all along. If somebody suddenly gets a 10x or 100x advantage over everybody else, 
uh, then they could ignore all the checks and impose their own will. And that's what people are worried about. I mean, like, hey, who was here for um, uh, Danny Ellsberg's Zoom conversation? Who joined yeah. that one? On <laughs> that was pretty terrifying. Went on for three hours. And I think you know, we're definitely not through, uh, through, uh, yeah, we're definitely through there. I, I don't want to put you on the spot, Andrew, but uh, you uh, wrote a lot, like, really eloquently on uh, prepotence. Sorry. Um, and that also uh, tackling more risk scenarios and, and how they may uh, play into that entire uh, entire field. So I'm wondering, you know, maybe if you have a few suggestions, because, you know, they at least broadly relate uh, to the threat of like, what if the actors developing uh, more advanced intelligences can't hold each other in check? What happens in a race that, you know, goes out of hand? I don't know if you want to speak to it. Don't want to put you on the spot. Finally, don't, but... Yeah, I guess the main reason I introduced the concept of prevalence for AI and technology is because I think the risks are not only posed by centralized agency. And I'm glad we're all alert to the centralized agency risk, and I hope that that alertness will result in checks and balances appropriate to that type of technology emerging in case it does. But I think we can also have uh, distributed uh, technological changes that uh, get out of hand and can't be stopped. Like, it's not easy to shut down the electrical grid, And I think we could do it if everyone woke up tomorrow and decided we want to turn off the electrical grid. I think we could actually do it. Many people would die, but we could, in fact, go through the action of turning it off if we all wanted to. I can imagine getting into a state where humans, humans collectively, even if we all agreed, would not have the ability to turn off the, you know, the technology that we've built to sustain and manage the planet and, and each other. And I use the word prepotent to refer to a state in which, you know, AI technology is unstoppably transformative. There's a transformation that's coming, and we no longer collectively have the ability to stop it. And some people think we're already there. I don't know if we are, but I'm interested in uh, safeguarding not only against centralized risks, but any kind of systemic introduction of an unstoppable source of change to the planet. And the reason I care about that is because any vector of change, if applied to the Earth for a while almost certainly kills all humans because almost every variable, like you just pick some variable that, like the Earth, like concentration of carbon atoms or, you know, how much oxygen is available or what's the temperature or the air pressure. Just pick a vector, change the planet along that vector for a while, all humans are dead. So, um, so I think we should be very careful to introduce any source of permanent, sustainable change that's, that's unstoppable by us. And that's what we're trying to do. Well, I just today earlier talked with Mark about the fact that we may have already done so. Do you want to elaborate? Sure. Uh, so there's this there's often this framing about how uh, right now humans are in control, all computers are just things that we create and we run uh, and a world in which Uh, software are not just uh, cognition, but independent of us, uh, something that, that is essentially um, uh, something that is not under the control of any particular um, humans in a realistic way, DAOs, uh, uh, the, the programs that run under blockchain, um, uh, starting with Bitcoin, Uh, these are the, the, the thing that's interesting about today's world is we see that humans have accidentally created an incentive structure where it's in the interest of humans to create systems for running programs that run according to the program's construction but are then 
once started incorruptible by humans. The incorruptibility is essential because these things become coordination points due to their credibility that humans can't corrupt them. And therefore, they're essentially operating as autonomous, independent creatures in the world that coexist with us but are not under our control. And I think, uh, at least in the chapter, like a few of them can already have rights by just the virtue of the fact that you can incorporate an entity uh, in Zook and then you can turn it into a DAO. And then even, especially if you transact with it privately, you, don't, you may not even know whether you are uh, interacting with an artificial agent or a human uh, already uh, in, in today's world. Okay, maybe one more and then... Uh, I just wanted to bring up that um, the risk might not only be things that even every human is free from. Right? Historically, there's so many times where a very small minority is able to sort of take control over a large majority. And I'd also be worried about systems, let alone if 90% of people don't like them it's still impossible to turn off. Say, everyone agrees that something is bad, that over-optimizing adds is bad, and yet no company that's controlled by shareholders can stop doing it without everyone else doing it. So it might be something that the risk is even closer, even without something that's fully autonomous. It just, there could be societal structures where, because of the common goods problem, no one can stop. Alex? Yeah, I, I, I having mentioned that uh, the reason why these things are uh, withdrawn from human control is actually something that in these cases we should welcome and we should realize that there is a, a premise here of creating uh, arrangements that humans can't corrupt, that have an integrity and will once they're started. And uh, that's, that's interesting. You can see that as a, in a very pleasure. So, so if I find a word. If, if I was an alien and you asked me to report on planet Earth, you know... If only! If, if you give me two words, I'd say mostly harmless. And if, if I got more than two words, I'd say, uh, well, uh, the main species on Earth is the automobile, and they enslaved these creatures called humans to drive them around. Uh, and, and, you know, they get most of the of the cities is devoted to the automobiles, and the, and the humans are slaves to them, and there's not much the humans can do about it. So, so that's the situation we're in. Uh, and now we're going to see, you know, are the computers going to take over from the automobile? Well, judging from your shirt, it's happening in space, too. Even what for the dogs? Um, all right. So maybe just to wrap it up uh, from the first one, then we do like a few minute break and then uh, we'll get into uh, the agoric approach to computing. And what do you think people, you know, who are now getting into the industry really should have their eyes on that they may not be aware of? If, you know, they're trying to make the future go well, as we all do in our own particular ways, what's a good thing uh, that they can do right tomorrow? Wow. Uh, I, I think the answer is different for everybody, right? So there's so much to be done. Some of it is technical. Some of it is political. Some of it is sociological. So just, just find a, a place to contribute. Did this conversation pique your interest? Maybe it even inspired a bit of existential hope about the future in you. Search for Fawcett Institute on YouTube or Twitter to stay up to date, or visit Fawcett.org to learn more, subscribe to our newsletter, and join our efforts. We are entirely funded by your donations, so please support us if you like what we do. Thank you so much for listening.